Remain standing while I read the first four verses of John's first epistle. The text is printed in your bulletin for reference if you would like to follow along. This is the inspired word of God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word and thank you for this look that we're preparing to take into 1 John. Be with us as we study this book together. Help us to see your will for us in your word for us as we look through this book led by your spirit. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see that we might know the truth, the truth which is found in Christ Jesus, whose name is the only name by which we might pray, confident that you are hearing us, sure that we have salvation, knowing that we are your children. Amen. Well, today, as I said, we begin a new series. We're going through the epistle of 1 John. It was a letter that was originally written to the churches of Asia Minor in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was written by the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. And he wrote it because there were problems in the church. I know it's hard to imagine a church that has problems. But it does exist, I understand. And so it was in the churches of Asia Minor. There were problems. There were problems that they, they had to deal with. And so, so John was writing to deal with that set of problems. And the main set of problems that was there was there, there had been this infiltration of this false theology. Uh, we might, might understand it as being a a, a docetic or Gnostic theology that, that understood that Jesus was not really a man, that he only appeared to be a man, that he was really just some kind of spirit or maybe a ghost or, or an angel or some kind of uh, theophany like we so, see in the Old Testament sometimes. But John has a message for them and a message for you. And in this text today, we look at the heart of the message, the evidence for the message, and the goal of the message. First of all, the heart of the message. 
It's interesting, isn't it, how, how John just kind of launches right into things in this, right? If, if we're familiar with the epistles of Scripture, we, we realize that oftentimes, almost always, the authors of a, an epistle will, will write a word of introduction, kind of the way we might say at the beginning of a letter, dear so-and-so, and start out with a greeting. John does nothing of the sort here. Right? Think of Paul when he writes Ephesians. He, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. John even does the same thing in 2 John. When he writes that, he, he starts off by saying, the elder, he's referring to himself, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth in, and love. But, but in this letter, John does nothing of the sort, right? He just jumps right in, right off the beginning. That which was from the beginning. No standard introduction, no, hello, how you doing? Hope the wife and kids are fine. Nothing like that. He just leaps right in it. Maybe it's the urgency of the, of the false teaching, the situation that's been brought about by that, but for whatever reason, he jumps right into the heart of the message. That which was from the beginning. He goes on later in verse 1 and into verse 2 to say, concerning the word of life, the life, the eternal life, he says, which was with the Father, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you. There's this message that he wants to get right to. There's this that that he talks about. He refers to it here as, as the word of life and as eternal life that he feels compelled to talk about it. It mirrors, doesn't it, the opening words of John's gospel, right? The same author, of course. We just read those words a moment ago in our unison scripture reading. We spoke about how the word became flesh. And, and when we see these words, words and life in, in John's writings, we understand that they refer to Christ Jesus. That's the point of what we read just a moment ago, isn't it? When we read that, that all things were made through him, without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The point is that the one who is the creator of all life and the sustainer of all life is life himself, right? That's what he says. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I came, he says, that you might have life and have it abundantly. Right? It's an exclusive claim that Jesus makes. He, he says that if you really want to live life like life is meant to be lived, if you really want to have the life that God wants you to have, if you really want to live for all that life is worth, you can only do that through me. You can, you can try it over here. You can try it over there. 
And you might think it's pretty good, but you're missing out. He says the only way to truly live is in union with Christ Jesus because he is the source of all true life. And that's the exclusive claim that Christianity makes, of course, right? That, that we are, even as we are born, we are born dead in our sins. We are lacking life. And so he who is life comes along. And he has given his life for us on the cross, right? So, so it's done two things there, right? One is that he has taken the penalty that we owe. He has taken the, the death that is by nature ours and taken it on to himself. But then he has given us the life that is by nature his and placed it on us so that, so that on the cross, right, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. It's just very plain and simple and it's the exclusive claim that Christianity makes. It says you can't find that anywhere else. Right? Other religions, other philosophies, other ideas might have wonderfully good moral and ethical teaching. Right? This is not to say that no other religion teaches you to do good things. Most of them do. Right? Most of them teach you to do good things. They say, generally, we should be nice to people. They say we shouldn't steal. We shouldn't kill. Right? This is not a specifically Christian ideas. Right? But see, it's not just the morals and the ethics that Christianity is about. If it is not Christ who is proclaimed, then it is not Christianity. Right? Because we can teach in line with all of the moral and ethical teachings of Jesus. We can, we can live a life that follows the example of Jesus. We can have a culture that is founded on Christian principles. But if we do it all apart from the proclamation of Christ Jesus himself, then it is not Christianity. Right, Marshall McLuhan was famous for saying, the medium is the message. In Christianity, we could say, the man is the message. Right? The man, Jesus Christ, is the message of Christianity. James Boyce put it this way. He says, the most important thing that John has to say in his preface is that Christianity is Jesus Christ. Or Ian Hamilton put it this way. He says, John is actually inviting us to see that the message of Christ and the person of Christ are one. Indeed, Jesus Christ is the gospel. They've got it right. They've got it right. The, the message of Jesus Christ and the man, Jesus Christ, are one and the same. They can't be separated. D.A. Carson really astutely gives a, a really good analysis of this and that he thinks talking about other religions, how you can separate the man from the message, right? You can take the ultimate prophet of other religions, the ultimate messenger of other religions, and, and take him out, and you can still have the truth that they taught, right? With, with, with Buddha, if you take Buddha away, you can still have Buddhism, right? You, 
just somebody else said those things instead of him, you could still have that teaching. And, and you could take Krishna away and still have Hinduism, right? You, you could just have somebody else teach those teachings. Or, or with Islam, you could take Muhammad away and still have Islam with all of those teachings. It would just have to be somebody else who taught those. But if we try to do this with Christianity, it's just nonsense, right? Because once we remove Jesus, we have lost Christianity, right? Because it's not just what he has said that is important to Christianity, it's what he has done. It is what he's done, and if we remove him from the equation, we have lost Christianity altogether. If the person of Jesus is removed, we lose it. He is central to the message. So it's important that Jesus actually existed, that he actually did the things he claimed to have done. Right? And so we need to have evidence so that we believe it. So we need the evidence for the message, and John goes into that next. interesting beginning in verse one the second part of it we see him give this evidence it is an apostolic eyewitness account there are 13 uses in the first four verbs of of first person plural words we our and us what he's, he's saying here is, is, is he's writing this. This isn't just him writing it on his own. He's writing it on behalf of a group of people, specifically on behalf of the apostles. Now, it's possible that this is later in John's life. It might be that all the other apostles are dead and gone at this point. But he's saying that, that he is writing still, not just on his own, but on behalf of them, whether they are there or not. He's speaking on behalf of them. Now, they're not the only eyewitnesses to Jesus. Of course, there were countless people who saw Jesus and heard Jesus as he lived and walked and taught. And and there were, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 who saw him after his resurrection. But the apostles we want to look to as the most important eyewitnesses to what Jesus had to say and do because they're the ones who spent the most time with him. They're the ones that, that he especially invested his life into. And we see here that they heard what he had to say. They, he's talking about, talking about that which was from the beginning, verse 1, which we have heard. You know, I, I, I can't imagine what that must have been like to hear the teachings of Jesus. I loved when I was in seminary. I spent three years in seminary. And it was wonderful. It was, it was just such a joyful experience for me to sit at the feet of wise and learned teachers, professors, who, who poured out this teaching to me. And I was able to learn from them, and I loved it. It was so wonderful to swim in these waters of grace and of gospel and to, to just dwell in the midst of that and to take it in all the time. But I can't imagine what kind of seminary experience it must have been for the apostles, right? Because their three years weren't spent at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis. Their three years were spent with Jesus, with Jesus. What a teacher, the ultimate teacher, he who literally is the truth, sharing that truth with them. It must have been wonderful. And and we read in Acts 4 then, after, 
after Jesus has died and he has gone to be with the Lord, or he's, he's risen from the dead and then gone to be with the Lord, we read that Peter and John specifically were sharing the gospel with people and the authorities came to them in Acts 4 and said, said hey guys, you, you gotta stop doing this. You can't, you can't talk about this Jesus anymore in quite this way and Peter and John answered them, whatever, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God you judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Right? They were so impacted by what they had seen and heard that they couldn't not talk about it. Right? So, so it's what they heard from Jesus, but it's also what they saw. And we see that point being made here in 1 John. He says, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon. Verse two, he says, the life that was made manifest. Some versions say the life that appeared, right? So that we could see it. And we have seen it, he says here in verse two. Further on, he says, which was with the Father and was made manifest or appeared before us. Again, verse three, that which we have seen. John is making it very clear time and time and time again here that this is something that they beheld with their own eyes. They were literally eyewitnesses. And they had seen how Jesus lived. They saw how Jesus lived, and frankly, if we are honest with ourselves, we must admit the fact that how we live our lives is very different from how Jesus lived his life, isn't it? I saw a quote the other day from a friend, Joel Lawrence. He said, the church is called to walk in the way of the lamb who was slain, bearing the cross as those who are citizens of the peaceable kingdom. But all too often the church has walked in the way of the devouring dragon, striving for the power of the kingdoms of the world, making us enemies of the gospel of peace. Through this, the name of Jesus has been debased and misrepresented. Forgive us, O Christ, and heal us. He's right, you know, too often we as the church look just like the world and nothing like our Lord. We hear the world's promises. We feel the world's pleasures. We see what the world values. We hunger for it. That's why the book of Hebrews, we, we, we read that the author of Hebrews tells us that we are to look not to the world, but, but look instead to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't look to the world. We look to Jesus. We read in Colossians 3 that if you have been raised with Christ, you're to seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, where he's seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He who says, my kingdom is not of this world. And yet we run around spending all of our time and our energy and our passion on trying to build and maintain earthly kingdoms. 
earthly kingdoms that are so self-serving, trying to accomplish our goals for our purposes, for our glory. When we focus on Jesus, we see in him a radical humility, a radical humility that wasn't focused on self, but rather was focused on the glory of God and the good of others. I think of all that he sacrificed for you and for me, the eternal stepped into time. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He emptied himself of his glory. He set aside his prerogatives and his rights. We fiercely fight for that which we feel is our right. And if someone fights against us, we fight back all the more, don't we? We we have a Lord who tells us, turn the other cheek. But our natural tendency is instead to throw the other fist, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying there aren't situations, actually, where perhaps we do have to do things that, that seem to be, maybe it's not quite turn the other cheek or whatever. Perhaps those situations do arise. What I'm saying, though, is this, that we ought not to respond to the command to turn the other cheek by immediately trying to think of the 17 different times that we don't have to turn the other cheek, right? Try to explain it away. Well, it doesn't really mean this, and, and we don't really have to do it here, and, and you know, we, surely he doesn't want me to do this. How about instead of rationalizing it away, we respond to the command of Christ Jesus to turn the other cheek by saying, where in my life can I actually do that? Lord, show me opportunities to turn the other cheek. Empower me with your spirit, with your love, with your forgiveness, with your grace, so that I might actually turn the other cheek and so honor you and love you and serve you and look different from the world in which I live as a peculiar and odd sort of fellow who has been changed by the person of Christ Jesus? What would it mean for us to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? What would it look like to love one another as he has loved us and gave himself up for us? What would it mean for us to be peacemakers in a world filled with turmoil? John is saying, we saw how Jesus lived and we try to live the same way. He goes on, we didn't just hear him, we didn't just see him, we actually touched him. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's saying, saying, we didn't just hear him, we didn't just see him, we actually touched him, we felt him physically. Right, think of all the times in their life that they had actually, actually touched him, the times that they met him and, and hugged him. Hello, Jesus. Think of Peter, right? Falling into the, the stormy waters and the wind and the waves. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him and holds his hand and pulls him to safety. Think of the, that night when Jesus was betrayed At the Last Supper, he washes the disciples' feet and they felt his his hands on their feet as he 
removed the dirt and the dust from them. Think of John himself, who's writing this now, how on that night leaned into his breast and, and reclined against it, perhaps feeling the very heart of Jesus beating as he leaned against his chest. They, they touched him. And post-resurrection as well, right? In Luke 24, Jesus says to the disciples, why are you troubled? Why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself, touch me and see. See, see he really rose. It wasn't just a, a, a specter. It wasn't just a, an imagination, a mass hallucination. He's saying he physically was there. I remember reading a story about, about an Anglican priest who was interviewed once, and they asked him, they asked him, what, what, if, what if they found the tomb of Jesus and his body was still there? Would that have any impact on your, on your faith? And, and this priest, I think he was actually an archbishop, they, they, they asked him, would it have any impact on his faith? He said, no, not at all. Because even if Jesus was still there, he's risen in my heart. And that sounds very pious, and that sounds very wonderful, but it's also very foolish. But you see, Jesus didn't just rise in our hearts, he actually rose physically. And if he has not risen physically, Paul tells us that we are among all people most to be pitied because it's all foolishness and nonsense. If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then what we're doing here is, is a waste of time. But if he did physically rise from the dead, then we must pay attention to everything he has said, everything he has taught us. And that leads us to the goal of the message. The goal of the message is twofold. Verse three says, we proclaim it also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then the second goal is seen in verse four. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. First of all, that you may have fellowship with us. The idea of fellowship is a key idea in the scriptures, very key uh, in the New Testament and specifically here in 1 John. The idea of fellowship is, is the Greek word koinonia. It, it means to share life together. Because you see, God's purpose is not just to not just to save a bunch of individuals from the fires of hell, but rather he, he wants to save us, to make us members of one body so that we might be united together with one another. Now, in our current context, COVID has made that more difficult, right? It's made it more difficult to have fellowship with one another. But that doesn't mean we can't still nurture the bonds of fellowship that ought to exist between us. I want to issue a challenge to you all this week. I'm gonna issue this challenge. I want you to, at some point this week, reach out to somebody, call somebody on the phone that maybe normally would be here, but isn't here. Somebody that, that you know would love to be here, but for health reasons feels they can't be. Or perhaps it's even somebody who, who is here on Sunday mornings, but you don't get a chance to talk to because, because after worship they take off right away or you take off right away. Call somebody, not somebody that you are already gonna call, you know, well, I had it on my calendar to call so-and-so Wednesday, so I'll just count that one. No, I'm, I'm talking about somebody who you weren't planning on calling, somebody you don't normally talk to. 
reach out to somebody, call them, and, and, and make contact with them and see how they're doing and, and strengthen those bonds of fellowship that we have within the body of Christ. That's the desire here that John has, so that you might have fellowship with us. But at the same time, we need to realize that this idea of fellowship isn't just that we are joined together with one another. Indeed, that's part of it. But it goes beyond that. You see what, what is being said here. He says, so that you may have fellowship with us, right? that you might share in the fellowship that we already have, is what he's saying. And which fellowship is that? Well, verse 4 tells us our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying? He's inviting them into the fellowship that he and the apostles have with Jesus. He's saying this close, intimate, personal relationship that we have with Jesus, you can have too. You can have that same relationship. You can be part of this body that is the bride of Christ, right? This idea actually of koinonia, fellowship, is actually a term that in classical Greek was sometimes used of the marriage union. You see, because that's the idea. We are to have the most intimate of relationships with Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that this is the, the closeness with God that is available to us in Christ Jesus so that we might be the bride of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians 2 also the, the household of God, the temple of the Lord. This is the idea we are to be brought together in this way. One commentator says, we have no communion with the Father without communion with the Son. And no communion with the Son without communion with the apostles. And no communion with the apostles without receiving their written testimony in the communion of the church. See, the apostolic testimony of Christ Jesus as the risen Lord, is what makes us one. It's what binds us together. You can have different favorite sports teams, right? You can root for Michigan or Michigan State. You can even root for Ohio State. I know, it's hard to believe. But the gospel breaks down barriers. Right, and we laugh about that one, but it goes beyond other things as well. Socioeconomic status, educational experience. It doesn't matter. It could be different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. It doesn't matter. It could even be different political persuasions and beliefs and convictions. It doesn't matter because we don't find our fellowship in those things. We find our fellowship in our relationship with God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That is what binds us together. That is what our banner is. That is where we rally to and come together in Christ Jesus and the forgiveness that we have from our sins through him. Finally, it's interesting, he says that his goal is that our joy may be complete. He doesn't say that your joy may be complete. I thought that when I first read, I thought that's odd. It seems like what he's saying, he's like, I want you to know this so that your joy may be complete, but that's not what he says. He says that somewhere else in John 15, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. But here he says, we're writing these things so that our joy can be complete, right? I want you to have fellowship with us and with Jesus so that our joy may be complete. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is your joy made more complete by the fact that others join with us? 
Is your joy made be more full, more mature? Is that the natural flowering out of your faith that you would, you would share it with others so that they might come in and join us? Doesn't that mean if it is that you will have an outward focus, not just looking at what we do here for us, but looking out to the world around us? Doesn't that mean that you will share the reason for the hope that you have? with friends and family members, with neighbors and coworkers? Doesn't it mean that you will, you will look for ways to serve them and to love them? And doesn't it mean you'll even invite them to join with you here at worship? And doesn't it mean that you will look to the church not so much as a place where your needs are met, but rather a place where you can be used by God to meet the needs of others? And in so doing, Our joy can be made complete in Christ Jesus. This is what John wanted for the churches of Asia Minor. This is what Jesus wants for the church here in Flint. This is what we should want in our heart of hearts. Let us look always to Jesus. Let us have our gaze captivated by the wondrous cross let us give him glory in our lives here and forevermore. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, we thank you. You have shown us grace we do not deserve. You have shown us glory that we could not otherwise behold. You have given us a goodness which we have not attained. And you've done it all on the cross cross where you bore our sins, the cross where you became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we pray that you would cause us to day after day, moment after moment, flee once again to the cross that we might always remember what you have done there for us. Help our joy to be filled up in the loving of others much as you have loved us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you rise now as we sing together hymn number 338, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.